Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the Firetime Podcast. Well, hey, we are just about done with our series on the seven steps of the sales process. So far this season, you've heard me talk with a bunch of different guests about each of these different steps. And the purpose is to help you guys see how going deep and becoming a student of the game in each of these steps helps us become way more effective with sales than we would be if we did things haphazardly or honestly, even just by instinct. I think that instinct can get us so far, but it's when we put the steps together and practice each one that we start to see true success. And to close out this series, I wanted to share a presentation that I gave about six months ago. So, Earlier this spring, I was invited by Northeast Distribution to give a keynote address at their yearly conference that they had. And this is the second time that I've been there. It's an absolutely amazing event. And on day two, the keynote that I gave was about moving from playing defense to playing offense when it comes to sales. And it was about this seven-step sales process. I'm excited for you to hear how all of these steps lead from one to the next to the next to the next. And the crowd was great at this event. There was really good interaction. And I kind of walked away feeling like, man, this is special. And I want to share this as a podcast episode. So with that said, I'm going to jump out of the way and let you hear this keynote address. And then I'll come on at the end and share a few parting thoughts. Well, hey, thank you everybody for coming to day two here at Northeast Distribution. I'm super, super excited to teach this course today. We wanted to save something really, really special for the end and I hope that this delivers for you. So yesterday, we talked about leading a company through times of uncertainty, which is where we are right now. Doesn't mean the bottom has fallen out, but things are uncertain. They're different than they were before. For the last few years, it was just hold on because there's so many fish jumping in the boat, we're gonna try not to sink. And, and things are different now. We're gonna be talking today about sales leadership. How do we go from a company that does sales by accident to a company that intentionally gets sales on purpose? We're gonna talk about moving from playing defense to playing offense. And again, there's nothing wrong with playing defense when it is so busy we, we can't do anything but hold on. There's nothing wrong with playing defense in those situations. But for many companies, what's happened is we have forgotten the muscles it takes to play offense, and those muscles have started to atrophy. So yesterday, we talked specifically about a sales process, and we talked about seven steps to it. Does anybody here remember any one of those steps that was here yesterday? Anyone remember one of the, Yeah. Greet the customer, oh, so good, low-hanging fruit, I love it. Greet the customer, that's one of the steps, and it's a really, really important step. For today, we're gonna dive deep into every single one of those, very, very deep. And the reason for this isn't to say that this is the only process that works. You have to use it, nothing else will grow your business. That, that's not the point. But the point is to show you this is a sales process, and having a sales process and I don't care what that process is, is better than having no process. So my hope is that this gives you a foundation. You can take this and run the play exactly as I give it to you. You can take it and modify it. Whatever direction you go, my hope is that you walk away with a sales process that you can use in your business. We're, we're gonna take some, some deep steps on this. One of the reasons that companies today have to have a sales process goes back to a quote that I really, really believe in. And the quote is from Zig Ziglar. Any of you guys read Zig Ziglar? Yeah. Zig's got a great quote. You've probably heard it if you're familiar with him. He says, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. And think about that. When it comes to our sales, if we aim at nothing, we'll hit it every time. What do we expect out of the salespeople that work for us? If we don't know, if we're not aiming at anything, well, how on earth can they hit it? I mean, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do nothing, right? So the purpose of a sales process is to aim at something. Because when we're aiming at something, we can say, how'd we do? Did we hit it? Where did we go wrong? 
What can we do next time? We can celebrate wins. Oh my gosh, hey, great job. You did such a good job greeting the customer. How can the rest of us start to learn how you do that? Because we know what we're aiming at. Now, when I talk about a sales process, and especially for those of you who weren't here yesterday, we're gonna go in depth through seven steps of a sales process. And if you would have asked me when I first got into this industry, hey Tim, we're gonna have you go to a seminar to learn about the seven steps of a sales process, I would have said, put a drill in my head. I mean, honestly, right? I don't work at McDonald's. We're natural, we do it ourselves. We're not corporate America. That's why we're in this industry. I, I, true, like I, have, I believe all, the, all of those things are true. But as we discussed yesterday, having a sales process doesn't mean you make your team a robot, it means you give your team direction and what you expect. Because without direction and what you expect, how on earth can they rise to meet that performance standard, right? So, a couple things. When we talk about a sales process, I've got a map on the screen right here. It's a map of the United States. Now, I live right here in Portland, Oregon. So long ways away from New Hampshire. But if I was gonna go on a road trip to drive all the way out to New Hampshire, I'd follow a route. And that's what a sales process is. It's a route. To clarify though, a sales process is not a level of micro that says, okay, get on this highway, stay in this lane, drive this fast, don't, don't slow down here, stay the same speed, get off here for gas, get off here for lunch. That's a level of micromanagement that is not helpful for your teams. But a sales process says, if I'm gonna drive from Oregon out to New Hampshire, we're gonna start in Oregon, we're gonna head east, we're gonna get into Idaho, and we're gonna continue east into Wyoming and go from there. To continue the analogy with the sales process, I don't care if, if I take one road and my salesperson takes a different road. As long as we're in Oregon heading east, that's fine with me, right? They may stop somewhere for lunch, I might go faster here, they might go slower there, but we're moving the same direction, we're in the same state. If we end up in Texas, something's wrong, right? There's no way we should be in Florida because there's a route and there is a route to sales as well. Now, one of the most important things in sales is that sales is a game of momentum. And momentum in sales can never slow down. It can never slow down, it must always increase. Once the momentum for a sale starts to stall, you lose and it crashes. But the problem with momentum is that most often we build it too quickly. In, in the majority of the secret shopping that I've done, when I walk into a business, I'm looking at a product within usually 45 seconds of coming into the business. And that's way too quick. It's way too quick. Momentum is built too fast. Because for me as the customer, the salesperson hasn't taken the time to understand my problem. So now they're showing me something and I might get excited about it. But then they find a piece of information that means this actually won't work. And then they have to switch to something else. And then they find out another piece of information, you ping pong all over the place and the momentum for the sale dies. Instead, we wanna build momentum slowly and intentionally so that we can calibrate in the right direction. And once we're calibrated, we hit the gas. And that's, that's hard, it takes discipline to do something that you could do faster at a slower, more intentional speed. Okay, that's the overall analogy for today. So, sales has a route to it. I threw this image up yesterday. For those of you who are new, this image, Blockbuster Video. We look at it and we say, man, that's like a, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, right? We look at that, but, but truly, this is the last Blockbuster Video in existence. It's in Bend, Oregon, about three hours from my house, and, and it is a real business. You can go in and you can rent a, I've never been in there, I'm assuming you can rent a VHS or a DVD still. But that's what they do. Now, why did Blockbuster go out of business? We talked about this yesterday a little bit. People threw out, well, because of Netflix, because of, of Redbox, because they wouldn't change. All those things are true. And what's amazing about Blockbuster is that 23 years ago, in the year 2000, Blockbuster Video had the opportunity to buy a small fledgling company called Netflix. And they chose not to, 23 years ago. Now at the time, Netflix didn't offer streaming. Streaming wasn't around yet. But they had two fundamentally different business models. The blockbuster business model played defense. Have a great showroom, invite people in, offer great products inside, have good customer service. Does that business model sound familiar at all? Netflix's model played offense. Let's bring the product to the customer rather than forcing the customer to come to the product. 
Now, this isn't a class about that specifically, but fundamentally, Blockbuster was content to play defense when Netflix wanted to play offense. And when you look at how Netflix has changed over the years to go from you know, mail order DVDs to a streaming platform, to creating content, like I'm not saying Netflix is the perfect company, but they're an example of a company that has iterated and evolved to meet their customer where the customer wants to be met versus standing firm and forcing the customer to play their way. So when we talk about this, moving from defense to offense, I wanna, I wanna give some important definitions here. My definition of playing defense is waiting for customers to come in and counting on what's been done before. And, and it's easy to do this, right? We're slow, so what do we do? Well, we gotta get some more door swings, right? And then you tell the team, how we're slow. Yeah, we really gotta sell more. Well, what's the team do? I mean, how do they sell more? Do they apply more pressure and you know, make it more high stakes for customers? Like, that's not a great environment. But when all we do is say, well, let's just keep running it back, just get that next radio ad, try to drive these door swings and just try, we really gotta sell more, guys. It's doing the same thing we've always done. Playing offense is different. Playing offense is where we go out and find the customer and we guide them through a specific sales process. And there's difficulties with adopting a sales process and as a result, there's many businesses in our industry that struggle. And the reason that they struggle is because number one, they don't have a documented sales process that moves customers from A to B. When we have a sales process, we know every single time somebody comes in, this is how we move them from A to B. This is how we move them from B to C. We ask for the money here, and then we do it again. When we know how to move customers from A to B, it's amazing how customers move. Next, many companies don't manage their book of business inside a sales dashboard. So as a salesperson, one of the most important things that we can do if we wanna start playing offense is going after our customers through a sales dashboard. We covered this a little bit in my class yesterday afternoon where I really recommend that each salesperson in every showroom needs to follow up with 15 customers per week. 15 a week. In addition to that, I recommend calling customers back to follow up a minimum of seven times before giving up on the opportunity. Minimum, bare minimum. And we can, we'll talk about that later because it shocks people when I say that, but, but I'm telling you, like, it works and people actually appreciate it. Now, in addition to that, many companies don't have sales goals or a regular sales meeting. And that goes back to if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. What's good performance for your team member? Well, we might have an expectation of what they should sell, do they? Are they in touch with it on a, on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis? Do they know? Now, we can give them goals, but that could crush their spirit. So do we have sales meetings where we work with them, we train them, we invest in them to help that team member? You know, the, the combination of goals and meetings starts to give us traction. Finally, many companies don't invest in a regular sales practice time. And as a result, their team practices on their customers. By committing to a rhythm of practice, we start to get better at our craft and we start to get more self-aware. And practice is really uncomfortable. But for me as a, as a retailer, what I would ask of my sales reps, I mentioned this a little bit yesterday, that in general, we wouldn't have sales reps come in to do product training. I can read a brochure, I can watch a video, I can take a, a course in an online portal. When I have a sales rep come in, I want them to train my team to sell, right? So I want them to be the salesperson, we're the customer, go. Teach me how to sell it. Okay, then we're gonna switch. You be the customer as the sales rep, my team's gonna be the salesperson, go. Critique my team, tell them how to get better. And I know for a fact, like the team here at NDL would love to do that. Like, but invest in your sales reps to teach your team to sell. This is where we move the needle. Now, when we're going to adopt a sales process, it's not as simple as saying, hey, I heard this great course on a seven-step sales process. Let's just use it. Because that's in one ear and out the other. In order to do this, it's hard work. We have to first pick the process. We have to document it, teach it, practice it, and coach it. And if we don't want to do those things, I don't know what to tell you to grow your sales. I really don't. You know, Otherwise, it's just playing defense and hoping something different happens doing the same thing. But when we start playing offense, what happens is all of a sudden you start spending less money in marketing because your team is more efficient with the customers coming in. You know, when, when we started this, our estimate percentage, the percentage of customers that we would write estimates up for in the showroom 
and these are customers that are looking at fireplaces, not people looking at like gasket rope or a piece of single wall pipe. Our estimate percentage was about 17%. It's horrible. But I didn't know until we started measuring it. As we started working on it, we were able to grow that to upwards of eight. And so when we're writing up, you know, four to five times as many estimates, my goodness, it's amazing how now we have more customers to follow up with. Now we can start to select our best jobs to follow up on versus our worst jobs. It starts to give us more control over our book of business. So that is my argument going into why we want to adopt a sales process. As we get started next with these steps, you are more than welcome to raise your hand, to offer pushback. We, we, you can ask questions. We can talk about this because my goal is that these steps can be contextualized for your business and for your team to help your customers. Now, I'm going to read these seven steps here, and we're going to dive deep on each one. The thing I'll say is that as you listen to them, it's easy to think, yeah, we do that. Yeah, we do that. We do that. Because they're so simple. There's, there's nothing complex about this. The difficult thing in sales is not to know what to do. It's to do the thing. And, and that's what's so hard, okay? So step one in the sales process, Megan shouted this out earlier. Step one in our sales process is we greet the customer. Pretty simple, right? We know we should greet a customer. In a second, we'll talk in detail about some ideas on how to do that. Step two, we take the time to understand their problem. Step three, after we understand the customer's problem, we advise a solution. Step four, once we've advised a solution, most customers that are coming in to buy a wood stove or a gas insert have not purchased one recently. It's not a frequently purchased item like a pair of tennis shoes or even a car. So step four is we explain the process. How do our jobs work? What are the steps that have to happen to solve the customer's problem? Step five, we call the customer to action. Step six, we pursue the opportunity if the call to action has not led to a sale yet. And then finally, step seven, we show gratitude. We have an intentional process of how we show gratitude to our customers. Those are the seven steps. Oftentimes, I find that businesses do 60% of this 40% of the time. But each of these steps is like a baton pass in the relay race. If you don't pass that baton cleanly, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter how good of a job I do understanding the customer's problem if I don't present them a good solution that's relevant to it. It doesn't matter. So the steps build momentum as you start to pass that baton. Well, let's jump in. Greet the customer. This is a photo right here. An example of a customer greeting. When it comes to greeting the customer, we only have one chance to make a first impression. And we have the ability, when a customer walks in our doors, to either invite a connection or to discourage a connection. And it's up to us. Most often, I, I was doing, I, I, off the top of my head, I could think of 21 retailers in about six major markets of the US and Canada that I've secret shopped in the last three years. And not once has a salesperson invited me into a connection. Not once. Doesn't mean there's not people out there that, 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 don't, that do it. I mean, I, I just haven't met those people. So we gotta be really careful. Are we inviting a connection or not? So when it comes to greeting a customer, what are some things that make an effective greeting? Introduce yourself. What else is good in a greeting? Eye contact, what else? Smile, yes, appearance. All those things matter. All those things matter. So let's, let's talk about some of these basics. I don't wanna go too long on greeting because we already talked about some of this in our course yesterday. But I really believe in introduction, eye contact, and a handshake. We should train every single person to greet customers that way when they come into the showroom. Now, we live in a weird post-COVID world. You can tell if someone's wearing a mask coming in, modify your approach. But we're basically getting back to the point where we can do these things as a normal human activity. One of the things that I believe we have to avoid when people walk into our showroom are the five words of death. And this might sound crazy, so, so please don't, don't chase me out with uh, pitchforks and torches, but these are the five words of death. When someone comes in, never say these words as your opening phrase. How may I help you? Don't ever say that to people when they first walk into your store. And the reason why is it discourages a connection. When people come into your store, they're nervous. They, they feel like they're walking onto the used car lot. And everything in them, the guard is up thinking, am I gonna get taken advantage of? Am I gonna be charged a fair price? And I, I've heard it said this way, when you walk into a grocery store and someone says, hey, how can I help you today? 
What do you say to that person? Uh, no, 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 thank you. You walk into Target, an associate comes over. Can I help you find anything today? What do you say? Uh, no, 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 thank you. It's not that we don't want to help them. And asking, how may I help you? That, that's a kind thing. But people are programmed to push that away. They are programmed to push that away. Instead, when you walk into a showroom, and a salesperson greets you from across the showroom, hey, how you doing? Thanks a ton for coming in today. They get up out of their desk, they walk over, and they extend their hand. Hey, my name is Tim. It's so great to meet you. That invites a connection. You cannot help but have that invite a connection. Now, there's more things in the greeting we can talk about. I'm gonna give you a question that I really like, and then we're gonna move on. There's a magic question, actually two questions, because one's a follow-up, that I really believe in during a greeting process. After we introduce ourselves, we talk to them a little bit, we small talk. So at some point you're gonna say, awesome, so, so what brings you in today? And the customer might say something, and I love to ask, well, that's great that you came in for that. Now, is this your first time in our showroom? Now, is that a threatening question where customers are like, whoa, 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 why'd you ask that? It's a pretty harmless question. Now, is this your, is this your first time in our showroom? It shows genuine curiosity. If they say, yeah, it's our first time, you can go, oh my gosh, well, hey, thanks for coming in. I know we're a little bit off the beaten path. How was it that you heard about us? The answer to that question tells us a lot about that customer. If they said, oh, I heard about you from um, my neighbor, what should the salesperson ask next? Who's your neighbor? Oh, it's, it's Barbara Jones. Wait, Barbara, no way. We installed the fireplace for her last week. Oh my gosh, so you live in this neighborhood. Oh, that is such a beautiful neighborhood. That's incredible. Well, thank you for coming in. Like, that's a gracious act to your customer versus, how can I help you? Oh, okay, wood stoves? Uh, yeah, come over here. That's the normal greeting process. So I don't want to beat a dead horse with that, but those two questions, is this your first time in our showroom? And then thank them for coming in and then ask, so how was it that you heard about us then? That tells us if our marketing's working. Okay, so we greet the customer as step one, and after that, we take the time to understand their problem. Now, this is a picture right here of a real-life interaction that me and a friend had with a client. And what is the body language of this picture telling you? Listening, yeah. Now, does the customer look engaged? What, what makes it look like the customer's engaged? Hands are out, that's right, yeah. So I, I love this picture. We, it, this is a, it was a real-life situation, and my sister was there, and she had a camera, so she started snapping pictures, but that captured something that we really wanna capture with our customers. So, we need to take the time to understand their problem. First question is, why is understanding the customer's problem so foundational to anything else that happens in the process? Saves time, that's right, it saves time. Oftentimes, we are taught product information. There's nothing wrong with product information. There's nothing wrong with understanding the way that framing and clearances to combustible work in a zero clearance fireplace. I am all for that. It is just unhelpful on the sales floor in my initial interaction with a customer. And we'll go into detail on that a little bit later. We need to take the time to understand their problem. And this is not discovery. You guys may have heard that term before. It's not discovery. It's not the customer interview. Because no customer wants to be discovered by a salesperson. They want to be understood. They want to be understood. Words matter. When we feel understood, we make a connection. We can't help but connect with people when we feel understood. So that's what we do with our customers. Now some keys to understanding. My friend Tim Rethlake, he says this. He says, if you take this much time understanding the customer's problem, it's amazing how it only takes this much time to advise a solution. And when you have advised a solution that is perfect for their problem, it only takes this much time to quote it. Because you only have to quote one thing. And then it takes this much time to close it. He calls that a slow is fast approach to sales. You go slow on the front end to understand their problem so you can go fast on the back end. The opposite of that is fast is slow. And that is what many companies do. I have made this mistake a million times. I spent many years as a frustrated salesperson taking a fast is slow approach. Don't take that much time to understand the customer's problem. As a result, you have to show them everything. And when you show them everything, they've got a million questions and a million cans of worms that they're opening up. So you have to quote even more and it takes forever. And then you don't close it or you close it by accident because you just opened up too much, momentum stalled. So some keys to understanding. 
This is the first thing. If there's, if there's one thing to take away from today, please, please do this one thing. With every single customer, sit down physically with them. Physically sit down to understand their problem. Me and Mason were talking about this last night and it's something that he's adopted in his business. This is a game changer. Not only does this build a connection with a customer, but my friend Jeff Reynolds says, it's amazing how when people sit down, their wallet falls out. So to understand a customer's problem, we really, really need to ask good questions. And we know this, right? When customers come in, we know that there's some things that they need to understand that we need to understand about their projects. We gotta go through some questions. Now, my belief is that every customer should be asked probably 15 to 35 questions before they ever look at a fireplace. We'll talk about that in just a second. And that might seem overbearing, but it's really not if you build it into the process and if you sit down. So sometimes I, I'm teaching this and I'll have people say, particularly men, they'll say, well, no customer wants to sit down for 10 minutes before looking at a product. They're busy. They don't want a million questions. And I'll say to them, um, yeah, you're right. They, uh, they don't want questions asked of them when you stand like this and go, yeah, okay, so uh, how many square feet you got? Uh, okay, right, okay, yep, got it, got it. Uh, and uh, you, want, you want to burn wood? Have you burned wood before? Do you have a good uh, source of wood for your house? Now, I'm being hyperbolic, but oftentimes when we stand up and we're cross-armed, it's confrontational. It's mono e mono, right? I mean, God forbid, if you're a man especially, never put your leg up on anything. Don't put it up on the, the ash pan. Of your, ne, just never, ever, ever do that. Uh, it is intimidating and it is unhelpful for the situation, okay? But when you sit down, I mean, literally, me and Wayne sit down and I'm like, well, hey, Wayne, um, thanks a ton for coming in. I'd, I'd love to learn a little bit about your project just to make sure that I can recommend a fireplace that's a good fit. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're hoping to get out of this wood stove? And I just listen. Okay, cool. I'm, I'm taking notes. Okay, perfect. Um, now you mentioned that you have, you have an older home. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Got it. Okay. 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 Cool. Um, now, have you have you ever had a wood stove before? Got it. And, and and what did that do for you? Okay. Okay. Perfect. Now this this new wood stove, they're, they're a lot different than the older ones. They can actually burn for a really long time. In a in a perfect world, like, how long would you want your your wood to last? Got it, okay. So there's a million questions we can ask, but do you guys see how the body language softens when we sit down? It softens and we start to you know, build a connection with people. Now with this, with understanding, thank you Wayne, with, with understanding a customer's problem as well, I, I believe this, and, and this is gonna sound crazy, I believe we must have a pre-scripted list of questions. We have to, we have to. Now, different situations, freestanding stove, insert, ZC, I'm great with multiple lists of questions. And this can be digital, it can be physical. But to this day, I mean, I am, I'm almost 20 years in this industry. And when I'm working a showroom floor, I will not work it without my laptop with my prescripted list of questions. I won't do it because I don't trust myself. When I've got a prescripted list of questions, I'm like a pilot. What makes a good pilot? Well, they follow the pre-flight checklist. And if a pilot says, well, I'm a natural, I don't need that checklist. I'm not flying on that plane, right? The, the, the resistance to using pre-scripted questions proves incompetency, it proves it. A professional uses tools that help them. And the cool thing is that when we use a pre-scripted list of questions, it frees our brains up to listen to the customer. Because I don't have to think about what's, what's Brian gonna say next? What, 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 what am I gonna say based on this? I can just listen to Brian and take notes, put my thoughts together, and I can ask either my next pre-scripted question or maybe a new one comes to mind and I can use my intelligence to say, oh, this is off script. Hey, let me, let me ask you this, Brian. So our brains can be used to solve problems and to listen, not to think, okay, what am I gonna ask next? Did, wait, what was their name? Did I, okay, did I ask them about Gasline? So we wanna use a pre-scripted list of questions. And, and what I found with this is that it gives customers a radically different experience. The way that we get permission to ask all these questions to the customer is with a magic phrase, though. So after we go through our greeting, when the customer it tells us why they're in, right? So we go through the greeting, is this your first time in? Oh great, what brings you in today? How did you hear about us? We go through all that and they say, oh, you know, we're, we're looking at a, a new gas fireplace. Now we don't know if that's an insert, we don't know if that's a ZC, we don't know, if it, we don't know yet because we, we haven't asked those questions. But this is what we say. We point to our showroom, we go, oh, awesome. Well, as you can see, we have a bunch of different gas fireplaces on display 
And not every gas fireplace is actually safe to go into every home situation. So if it's okay, I'd love to sit down and, and just learn a little bit more about the project and ask a few questions to make sure I'm on the same page. And then after that, I, I'd love to show you some fireplaces that'd be a good fit for your house. Now, what, what reasonable person would say no to that? Because you're telling them not every option is safe to work in every space. Is that, is that a true statement in our industry? 100%. But when we don't set that expectation, customers are like, why ask me all these questions? Once we set the expectation, all of a sudden, it's the most reasonable thing in the world to sit down and ask them questions because we don't want to waste their time. And that shows respect to the customer and starts to invite a connection. So I don't want to beat a dead horse with this, but, but having a pre-scripted list of questions and places to sit down will fundamentally change your team's interaction with your customers. And, and, and truthfully, when, when I've been invited into businesses to help them with their sales process and their showroom and things, in many cases, I have recommended that displays are removed so that seating areas can be in place. I mean, often, uh, sometimes as much as 25% of the showroom. And it's not that I don't believe in displays. I believe in them. You need to have amazing displays. But if there's nowhere comfortable and inviting for customers to sit down, to talk to a salesperson, to look at the product, we're, we're really missing the mark. In my old showroom, we had um, five gas stoves on display. And as we tracked our door swings and our quote log, we very rarely quoted them, much less even lost them. And as a result, we ripped out four of the five to put in a seating area because it was right next to our gas inserts. And we sold about the same amount of gas stoves we always did, but our insert sales absolutely skyrocketed. So the point of all that is take the time to understand the problem with your customer. If you can train your team to understand the problem, you're gonna be in really, really good shape. When we move to step three of our process, it's advising a solution. The language again is intentional. It's not present a product. It's not give a sales pitch. It's not, well, the customer needs a presentation. Because I can give a presentation to someone for a product that has no relevance to their problem. I can give a pitch for anything. But I can't advise a customer unless I understand. The words are connected. We can't advise a solution unless we understand the problem. Now, when we are advising a solution, one of the most important things we can do is filter back all of the information that we know in our heads to give the customer what's relevant for them. And this, this is not dumbing it down. It's being relevant for the customer, right? Often we are trained to make our customers fireplace salespeople and chimney technicians, right? When a customer comes in, we're trained. Oh yeah, this has 40,000 BTUs an hour. It has five different decorative fronts. And it uses direct vec technology, which is great, because that means it's got outside air for combustion. And that's, that's way more efficient. You know, they, they use a uh, insert proprietary name for IPI ignition system uh, to turn the fireplace on. And it comes in three different sizes. I mean, that's, that's great if I ever want to become a, a chimney technician that uh, can repeat that to my, my customer. But that is unhelpful to solve the customer's problem. 40,000 BTUs doesn't solve a customer's problem. Five decorative fronts doesn't solve a customer's problem in and of itself. Those things matter, but they matter when they're contextualized as solutions for the customer's problem. Donald Miller says, anytime you give a consumer a new piece of information, it's like handing them a bowling ball. And think about that. How many bowling balls like, could I hold before dropping them? Two, maybe three, you give me that fourth one, I start to drop it. Customers are getting so much new information from you that when all we do is load them up with more and more and more and more, the weight of the bowling ball starts to crush them and they drop the bowling balls. But the problem is they don't tell us they've dropped them. They say, oh, thank you. Man, that's some great information. See you later. And they never come back again. Instead, we need to think as we're understanding the customer's problem out of all the gas inserts that I sell, What's the one that's the best fit to solve their problem and why? You know, if it's a young family that's got little kids, this is, this is my situation. We tell the salesperson, yeah, you know, we, we don't like the idea of this wood fireplace that, you know, it's all sooty and our kids could get inside and get dirty. And, you know, we, we need something that's gonna be, gonna be, you know, warm our family up in a power outage. And uh, we're just really, we're just really worried about the kids getting burned by the, by the wood. Well, that means that I need to talk about a safety screen. I mean, honestly, dude, 
the, the two biggest features, in my opinion, the most important features to talk about in a gas sensor are safety screen and turndown rate. Those are the two most important features in a gas sensor. We can talk about that afterwards. But if I've got a family, I don't care about direct vent technology. I don't, I mean, like I'm, I'm glad it's got a FE efficiency rating of 71.3. And man, that's an interesting factoid that that's different than the AFUE rating of 76. But dude, I don't give a flying hoot about that. But if you tell me that my little kids are going to be able to be safe in front of this thing, and if they accidentally touch it, that screen's going to protect their hands, I'm sold. And if it works in a power outage, it's got AA batteries, you know, unless your power's out for two and a half weeks, you only have to change the batteries. Dude, I'm in. So stop right there. Like, the sale is made. It doesn't mean that every sale is going to be that easy, but every customer has a problem. And we got to make sure that the only things coming out of our mouth are solutions to that problem. If, it, if, if what we're going to say about the product does not address the customer's problem, then we shouldn't say it. Now, there might be technical information that we need to let the estimator know when they go out. We gotta let the installers know. So I'm not saying technical information doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter to the customer. Final story with this. I broke my foot playing basketball about six years ago, and it was a bummer. It was a bummer. Now, I was trying to dunk on middle schoolers at my church, so here's the joke on, right? And I go to the doctor, and the doctor doesn't tell me all the names of every bone in the foot and how the nerve endings are, are so fascinating, the way, the way that, that pain moves. And there's actually one theory by this doctor out of Johns Hopkins University. They wrote an amazing thesis about this, this new... Uh, you know, medication that can be used in, in combination with, but another, you know, another doctor has a rival theory about, about how they believe it, and it's just so fascinating to look at, at both of these. That, that'd be great if I was trying to become a doctor. That would be amazing. But my doctor did not try to make me a doctor. My doctor just said, man, Tim, I'm really sorry that you, you broke your foot. You know, you've got five toes in your foot. We call those metatarsals. Your, your fifth one right over here, you see this hairline crack? That's what happened when you came down. So as a result, we're going to put you into a, into a cast for six weeks. After that, you can go into a, a walking boot for four weeks. After that, I just want you to take it easy for the next four weeks. And after that, you're back on the basketball court again. That gave me what I needed to solve my problem. Now, he gave me some medical information as it was relevant to me solving the problem. That makes sense about advising a solution that way? It means we need to think about product stories. We need to think about features and benefits and what problems they address for our customers. When we move on to step four of the sales process, this is one of those steps, it, it is so easy and it's a quick fix. So building the discipline of a sales team to sit down with every customer and use a pre-scripted list of questions every single time, good luck, I'll see you in six months. Now it will transform your business, but I mean, I'll see you in six months. It's gonna take some time to do that. This step, step four, is we explain the process to our customers, you can start doing this tomorrow. The payback is instantaneous. And it's, it's just amazing, okay? So, we want to explain the process to our customers. For most customers, like I said, buying a wood stove, buying a gas insert, buying a zero clearance fireplace is an unfamiliar experience. It's an unfamiliar experience. And customers, going back to the, to the fear mentality, when they don't know what's happening next, they, they're very cautious. You know, in the same way for us, like we walk onto the used car lot, we're, our guard's up. We don't know what's next. What are they going to try to do here? Everything the salesperson says, we're, we're looking at what's the angle on that. What's that going to lead to, right? Well, when we explain the process, we take all the fear away. We take all the fear away. So after we have advised a solution, momentum has started to build, right? Because if you go back to our steps, step one, we greet the customer. We invite a connection. That builds some momentum. Step two, we take the time to understand their problem. We take five to 15 minutes to sit down, to get to know them, to understand their project. And that starts to build momentum. When we show them a product that is a perfect fit for their problem that will solve it, we are building momentum. The customer's getting pumped. Now we explain the process. And this is the process that I recommend if you, if you do in-home visits. If you don't do in-home visits, modify as needed. So, hey, you know, Mr. Customer, Mrs. Customer, so it looks like this fireplace is gonna be a really good fit for your home, and I'd love to explain the way that all of our jobs work. Buying a fireplace can be kind of confusing. This is the way that all of our jobs work. Step one, before you leave today, we'll write you up an estimate for this project, so that way you've got an idea of what it's gonna cost. 
Now step two, if those numbers look good, we'll send one of our technicians out to take a look at it just to make sure there was nothing missed in our conversation and they'll confirm that exact price of the job once they've seen it firsthand. And then finally step three, if you feel comfortable moving ahead, we'll schedule an install so you can start enjoying this fireplace. How's that sound? Now, what did we just do by saying step one, we're gonna write an estimate, Step two, we're gonna send someone out for an in-home visit, and then step three, we can get this scheduled. What did we just do? We created a path. When you give a price in the showroom, pick a number out of a hat, 7,500 bucks, and you get out to the house and it's different, that sets up disappointment for the customer, which is true, so how do we overcome that? This is what I believe the secret sauce is. In the showroom, give an estimate range. Not a hard number, give a range of 1,500 bucks or 2,000, I don't care the range, whatever it is, give a range. Because here's the thing, when a customer's in the showroom, are we operating off of our information that we've seen firsthand or their information? Theirs. And theirs is fallible, we haven't been there and seen it. So it's very, very reasonable for us to say, awesome, well hey, you know, Maria, based on your project, I've written this estimate up, based on everything you're saying, I think that you're gonna be somewhere between here and here. Now, we haven't seen it yet, so when we come out, we'll take a look at it. If there's any changes to that, we'll let you know, but I think this is where you're gonna be. Should we get that in-home visit scheduled for next week? If the customer says yes, looking at a price range of 72 to 8,700 bucks, and they say yes, come out to my house next week, what have they just told you? They're willing to spend the money, right? So what this does is it starts to vet our customers out. But that's, that's what I do. I, I love giving a range. The thing to be careful of, this range can't be written on a brochure, it can't be written on a business card. It's gotta be on your letterhead, documented. A, it's gotta be an official estimate from your company because then they can't get around it. There is no, well, I thought you said this, or, you know, well, you said it'd be 6,500. Well, you know, I, I didn't say that. I said it was gonna be 7,000 to 9,000, but it's been two weeks. We've all forgotten the conversation. It's gotta be official, and the cool thing is, the customer's staring at that thing for a week and a half. They're staring at it. And what do you think the husband and wife are talking about? Well, can we afford it? Okay, let, let's shop around a little bit. I mean, but say they try to shop you. And, and I mean, again, just say that, say that you give a number of 6,000 to 7,500 bucks for a gas insert. What can the competition do? I mean, everybody sells an insert for 6,000 to 7,500 bucks. Like, you're taking price off the table. And the cool thing too, is that if they decide to go somewhere else, what do they have to do? Call you and cancel the appointment. So it means you get one last shot to win the job. This is powerful. You want the coffee table battle to happen before your estimator comes out. The coffee table battles where they throw all their prices, their brochures on the table and they, you want that to happen before because they have to call you to cancel the appointment if you lose. And it means if they still kept the appointment, there's a high likelihood that they will purchase on site if the estimator could turn the bid around right there. So when we show the customer a path, step one, step two, step three, they know what's coming next. There's no surprises. Now, the cool thing on this too, notice the language that I said. Step one, hey, here's the way that all of our jobs work. That says that our jobs always work this way. It's easy, right? This is, this is commonplace, it's like going to a surgeon and the surgeon says, yeah, we do, we do thousand of these a year. Here's how the surgery works. We feel reassurance. Hey, here's the way that all of our jobs work. Step one, before you leave today, I'll, I'll write you up an estimate so that way you understand approximately what that'll cost. Step two, if those numbers look good, We'll schedule an in-home visit for you so that our technician can come out, we'll take a look at it, just make sure there was nothing that we missed, and they'll nail down that, that final number. And then finally, step three, if, if you feel comfortable moving ahead, we'll get this scheduled and we can put this in so you can start enjoying it. You're giving the customer an out at every single step except step one. So you're assuming, before, before you leave today, we'll write you up an estimate. Now, if those numbers look good, then we'll do this. And if you feel comfortable moving ahead, we'll do this. But if you can make that change with every single customer, it is unreal what starts to happen. If you give customers a path to follow, they will follow it. I'm not gonna tell a story, I want to so bad, but I had a salesperson ask me one time, I was the customer, and the salesperson asked me, so what's the next step? And I was like, dude, I, I, ho I hope you know what the next step is, because I'm the customer, man. So we, we give them the next step. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna move quicker here. Next up, we call the customer to action. And everybody gets afraid of this. There's all these classes on how to close and how to do this, that, and the other. There's a great story about Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. Now, for me, I'm not really a football fan. I've watched probably three games in total in the last five years, including Super Bowls. So like, you know, that tells you how much I watch football. But 
There's a show, I think, on HBO called Hard Knocks, where they like go into training camps and you know, all that stuff. They give you like an inside look at the team. And so, a number of years ago, they did one on the Dallas Cowboys. And I saw this clip of Jerry Jones talking, right? And Jerry Jones is this kind of kooky like, billionaire that, I don't know what he does, he's an oil tycoon, he lives in a other world, right? And Jerry Jones is talking to the, to the Cowboys team, like giving an inspirational speech. I don't know why he's talking about sales and his inspirational speech. But he's talking to Tony Romo and the Dallas Cowboys, and he goes, you know, in, in my life, I've been told that I'm a natural-born salesman. I, I can sell things. And in my life, I've learned five rules about sales. And I'm going to give them to you right now. Rule number one, always ask for the money. And I forgot the other four. So Jerry Jones is right. He's right. Except asking for the money is not always asking for the money. It's asking for the next step in the process you just lined out. Always ask for the next step. If the next step is the estimate, write the estimate. If the next step is the in-home visit, ask for the in-home visit. If the next step is scheduling the install, ask for the deposit. And be fearless about it, but ask for it. Because the cool thing is, by explaining the plan, you're giving the customer an out. You know, I mean, for now, we live in a free country, which is great. And that means that the customer has the right to say no. So. If they say no, that's no problem. We'll check them off the list. We'll go help the next customer. But it's up to us to lay out those three steps and systematically call to action on step one, then step two, then step three. That takes the fear of the call to action away from the salesperson and it removes the barriers for the customer of knowing what's coming next. Okay, we're gonna go through two more steps in the process here and we're gonna wrap. After we've called to action, the customer may not be ready right away to put their money down or to book that in-home visit, whatever it is. So we need to pursue the opportunity. And this is where a sales dashboard comes in. We wanna pursue the opportunity through a dashboard that shows us what's our customer's name, what's the unit that they looked at, what's the dollar value, what stage of the sales pipeline are they at? Are they at stage one, stage two, stage three? Have they booked an in-home visit? Have we completed the in-home visit? Have they only received an initial estimate? We gotta know this stuff if our sales team is gonna pursue opportunities. What's really helpful here is to rank our customers' jobs on a scale of A, B, C, or D. To be clear, A, B, C, or D is not ranking their value as someone before God. It's just simply saying, how attractive is this job to our business? We all know A-level jobs. Maybe it's a, a gas insert with gas already inside the fireplace. Maybe it's new construction out the back and it's framed up perfectly for us, right? We all know what those A jobs are. We all know what D jobs are. For me, it was a corner inside fit glass door because I always measured them wrong, right? So whatever it is, you know, those are the jobs that you, you do but you wish you didn't do. F level jobs are jobs you, you don't do. So, so rank your jobs on a scale of A, B, C, D. So when it comes time for follow-up, you can look at your, your list of work and say, I'm gonna call back this A-level customer. I'm not calling back that D-level one, right? That's a, it's a B job, I'm, I'm gonna call back on that. When we have information inside of a sales dashboard, it gives us power to call the customer back. We know what to do, we know what we're asking for. Sometimes we just dial for dollars. Well, we're slow, better call back some customers. We're like, uh, hey, uh, Mrs. Smith, this is Tim, and I'm, I'm calling uh, from Tim's fireplace store, just seeing um, how your job was coming along. That's a, I mean, that's not a helpful or persuasive conversation. But we can call a customer back and go, hey, Mrs. Smith, I know that you were in two weeks ago, and we took a look at this XYZ brand gas insert. I just wanted to let you know that our estimator schedule is starting to fill up, and I know it was important to you to get this done. I know you mentioned before Memorial Day because you guys are leaving for vacation. I just wanted to see if we could get a free in-home visit scheduled for next week so that that way you're not going to miss out on, on getting that unit in. You know, that's a confident call we can make. And this is how we start to train our teams by organizing things inside of a dashboard. Now, follow-up is like compound interest. On any one day, I can't promise you anything. But man, you got four salespeople doing 15 follow-ups a week, 60 a week, I mean, 240 a month, and you multiply that over the course of the year, there's some fruit to be had there. And here's the thing, the dirty secret of our industry, no one follows up with customers. No one does. And so if you can in your market, it changes everything. And we think customers are gonna be annoyed, they're gonna think that we're bugging them, but they won't. Because remember, they came to you. They came to you. 
And they'll tell you if they don't want to buy and just check them off the list and don't call them again. But when you intentionally call your customers back, most often they say, oh my gosh, thank you so much. We've been, we've been just so busy. It's been you know, a whirlwind and, and we, thank you for calling me back. Uh, let's, let's get that site business scheduled for next week. Maybe they'll tell you no, but I have found it very, very helpful to pre-plan my follow-ups, to pre-plan them. So when they're in the showroom, if I ask for the in-home visit and the customer's not ready, just ask them, so when's the best time for me to follow up with you? Could I call you next week and see if we can get this scheduled then? I mean, many times the customer will say yes if they tell you, well, we're gonna get a couple of, a couple of other bids. Cool, hey, that's no problem at all. I got, I got you know, two bids on my roof, I, I totally understand that. When do you think you'll have your, your bids by? I mean, this is a real life situation I've had where a customer truly, they said, well, um, we have someone coming out on Friday and so uh, we should have the bid on Friday. Well, what do you think I did? I called them on Saturday. Did they have the bid? Nope. So when I call, hey, this is Tim, I'm just calling back to check in on your project. I know that you're gonna be getting that bid yesterday. I just wanted to see how, how ours looked compared to theirs. Well, they, uh, yeah, they came out, but they actually, we didn't get the bid yet. And what do I say? You didn't get the bid yet? Oh, didn't, did they, didn't they tell you it'd be on Friday? Okay. Um, when, when do you think you'll have the bid? Oh, they said they'll have it on Monday. Okay, cool. Wait, if it's okay, I'll, I'll call you on Wednesday and just check in, just give you a couple days to look at it and uh, see what you wanna do. So you call them on Wednesday. Hey, this is Tim. I'm, I'm just calling again to, to check in on your fireplace project. I know that you were getting that bid on Monday. Just wanted to see how they look. Oh yeah, you know, they have, we actually called them. We have to message, we hadn't heard anything. And, and uh, so we don't have that bid yet. Oh, but didn't, didn't they say that they'd have it for you on Monday? Now, all I'm doing is holding them accountable to what they said, that's all I'm doing. But meanwhile, every time I've called the customer back, what have I been doing? Doing what I said when I said I would do it. Now, this is a true story. The, I don't remember the days. I don't remember if it was actually Friday or Saturday. But this is a true story. And no joke, the customers made the purchase. They made the purchase. Because it's like, how long are we gonna monkey around with this? Like, we've already been waiting for it. So building a follow-up process changes everything. And there's a number of ways you can do it. There's different CRM systems, there's different sales dashboards, but you need a sales dashboard in one glance. You can see your best opportunities, where they're at in the sales pipeline, when you wanna call them next, and what the notes are for the job, along with the scale of A, B, C, D. And, and that's something, I mean, truly for years, I can show you, like years ago, I built a, uh, like a Google Sheet to try to start doing some of this myself. Uh, and it wasn't perfect, but, but that got us, you know, part of the way there. And then you know, we moved on to, to other dashboards that gave us more. The point isn't to say you have to use this system or you have to use that system. The point is to say you have to have a system to follow up with your customers. And, and I mean, I'm not joking. Like, I, there's, there's, there's a, a salesperson that uh, I worked with a, a couple of years ago when I was, I was managing my retail stores who in his first year he did like $1.1 million in sales. Didn't know anything about fireplaces before day one. And, and I'd, I'd never seen results like that. Now, he was a rock star anyway, as, just as, as a human being, and, and that was very helpful. But providing him a dashboard to work within unlocked a superpower. It unlocked a superpower. And the reason why is that now he had a book of business that he could track and he could pursue. Now, he attributed 15% of his sales to jobs that he followed up on that closed within 30 days of the initial proposal, 15%. So on 1.1 million, I mean, what's that? 150 grand, not bad. And that's only within the first 30 days. That doesn't take into account everybody. He's calling back a month later, two months later, three months later. Now as a part of this too, we would use our sales dashboard to plan our promotions. One of the things that I really, really believe in in the sales process is always having a monthly promotion. Always have a monthly promotion. And when it's over, it's over. There needs to be a sense of urgency. And don't like beat people over the head with this, but if you have a promotion on gas inserts that ends at the end of the month, call the customer and say, hey, I just wanted to let you know, you know we've got this promotion for 200 bucks off our gas inserts, and it expires next week. I just wanted to make sure that, that you save that money if you wanted to move ahead with this. That's a genuine, urgent call to action. And they can say no, but you can use your dashboard to say, well, let's look at all of our jobs at stage three. We've been out for the in-home visit, we've completed the quote, and all that's left is for them to give us money. What do we have the most of? Is it gas inserts? Is it, is it pellet stoves? Build your promotions based on that. Now, I like to build them three months ahead so that we always know our next one, so our salesperson can genuinely say, 
when a customer says, well, when's the, is this the best time to buy? They can say, I mean, honestly, for this product, it is. Like, I'm looking at our upcoming promotion schedule, and we don't have anything like this coming up. They can genuinely say that. So plan your promotions a few months ahead. But managing your book of business through a dashboard, it starts to change those things. Follow-up is a hard muscle to build. Salespeople will fight you. They will tell you, I'm scared. That's okay. Dude, I'm scared when I follow up with customers. I'm afraid of being rejected. That's, that's, just, that's just life, you know? But more often than not, when we follow up, people are thankful. And it shows that we actually care about them and we actually care about their project. Have you guys ever had customers come in that are so frustrated because someone came out to the job, they bid it, and then they could never get a hold of them again? We've all had those customers. And we all laugh behind our backs and, oh my gosh, these people are leaving so much money on the table. It's all coming to us. I mean, if we don't have a follow-up system, I guarantee that for every one we get, there's four. There's four that are going out. What we, what we found with this is that as we started managing a follow-up process, our numbers showed us that we lost jobs four to one to indecision over competition. Four to one. It's, dude, I don't care about my competitor down the street. I don't care. I hope they do well. Because if they're selling more fireplaces, I know I'm going to get more at-bats. Because it means if people are typing in fireplace store into Google and I've got good reviews, even if they're going there, I'm probably going to get an at-bat. That's great. I'm not losing jobs, you know, four to zero to my competition. I'm losing to the car. I'm losing to the kitchen remodel. I'm losing to doing nothing because we've confused them out of the process and never pursued the opportunity to make it easy for them. So this is a fundamental game changer and it, and it affects your marketing dollars. My manager always used to say about marketing, you know, if you've got a, a bucket that you're picking raspberries and, and putting them into the bucket, if you've got a giant hole in the bucket, the answer is not, uh, well, we better, better cram some more raspberries into the bucket, you know? But that's, that's what we do. Instead, I want to patch the hole in the bucket, and then I'm all for advertising. Like, I love advertising. I'm all for it. But I just want to patch the holes in the bucket first. That makes sense, that distinction? Okay. Step seven. We show the customers gratitude. I love, love, love this picture. I love it. Now, part of the reason is that the fireplace isn't the hero of the story. Who's the hero of this story? Yeah, the kids. And the fireplace has a safety screen on it, so they're playing, unsupervised, next to the fireplace, love and life. I love this picture. This is what we sell customers. They're pumped on it. They are pumped on it. So we need to show gratitude to them. Now, this isn't a marketing class, but if it was, I would ask the question, do customers who have previously purchased from you and refer their friends to you, do those friends tend to be easier to sell to than a new customer or harder to sell to? Easier, we all know that, right? Does it take more time or less time to sell to them? Less time. And do they tend to spend more or less money? More. So my friend Tim Rethlick is like, well, okay, if it's easier to sell to them, it takes less time and they spend more money, that's amazing. So how many of us have an intentional gratitude process to win referrals? Not many. Now, with this, gratitude is such a big deal. Gratitude is the right thing to do and it helps our business. It's a both and, not an either or. But people are spending a lot of money, five grand, 10 grand, 20 grand on some of these projects. If we have a, an, an intentional process to show gratitude, something happens, you know? I love handwritten thank you cards. And, and I believe every salesperson should be given probably two hours a month off the showroom floor with a list of all their jobs installed from the previous month. And they need to have a stack of thank you cards and a stack of like $5 Starbucks gift cards. Handwritten thank you note, every single one. Hey, thanks so much for getting this fireplace. It was amazing to work with you. I saw the finished install pictures. It looks amazing. If you have any friends or family that could use the same you know, warmth in, in their house, uh, feel free to pass on my information. In the meantime, let me know if there's anything I can do to help you. Throw in three business cards and then throw in your Starbucks card. It's compound interest. Any one of those, I can't promise you're gonna get anything. But, but I'm not joking. If, if, if I've got the choice of burning through 50 grand in marketing for some freaking TV ad that's gone in a week or literally three years worth of thank you cards that might cost me $2,000, I mean, I know which one I'm picking every single time. Because the key to marketing, Seth Godin says this, the key to marketing is people like us do things like this. And what he means by that is it's amazing how people who buy $10,000 fireplaces have friends that buy $10,000 fireplaces. It's, it's amazing. 
It's incredible how in a neighborhood where someone spends $30,000 to knock down their chimney and build in a six-foot linear ZC fireplace, it's incredible how some of their neighbors do the same thing. So for me, if I have the option of spending my marketing dollars to carpet bomb the city of Boston, who 0.0007% of the population will ever even buy a fireplace during their life, much less during this season, and I've got a customer list of 5,000 people who know us, trust us, and have friends, I know where I'm spending my marketing money, you know? And gratitude does that. It's the right thing to do, and it helps our business. So building an intentional gratitude process it shows something about your company. It shows that you take the time to serve your customers and care about them. I'll tell you this, bonus points if your salespeople have kids. Get the kids to sign the card too. Bonus points, bonus points. Thank you, Brian. Brian said I got bonus points. You know, do it though. I mean, it, it's really, really powerful. Okay, so we've talked about the seven steps of the process and we're gonna wrap it here. Step one, greet the customer. Step two, understand their problem. Step three, advise the solution. Step four, explain the process. Step five, call to action. Step six, pursue the opportunity. And step seven, show gratitude. That's a process that builds momentum, that gives consistency. It doesn't micromanage people. It gives them lanes to run in. It puts lines on the basketball court so we know what game we're playing. If we can teach it, practice it, coach to it and document it, it's unreal what happens. And this is capped off by the sales meeting. Now in a sales meeting, we can practice. Let's practice greeting the customer, 30 minutes. I'm, I'm the salesperson, you're the customer, go. Hey, what, how could I get better at that? What, what did I do well? Okay, let me try it again. Now we can start to practice in our sales meetings and something magic happens when we practice. Now, I mentioned yesterday that we right now are in a time of uncertainty. And, and more than ever, we have to start playing offense when it comes to sales. There is no shame for what you've done in the past because it's gotten your business to where you are. Dude, there's no shame in that. You guys run great businesses, but things are different now. Now, if we want to take that next step, we have to play offense. And I know that every single one of you guys can do it. We're trying to make things better for our customers so they can stay warm and safe. We want things to be better for our community and for our industry. So I hope this helps you. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that keynote address. It was really, really fun to give, and I was just honored to be asked to come out to Northeast Distribution to give that presentation. You know, ironically, if you guys listened last season to the episode where Matt Bradley talked about hiring and inspiring Gen Z, we were both at this same event. So this happened literally later in the day from when Matt gave that course in the morning. And the last couple of years that I've come out to Northeast, that event has been popping every year. And there's a lot of really good content to help companies move the needle. You know, my hope with that is that when you hear all the seven steps at once, you can envision the map, right? Sales is like a road trip and a sales process doesn't tell you how fast to go, what highway to get on, or where to stop and go to the bathroom. It doesn't do that. It's not micromanagement. And the same thing is true with sales. And so my hope for you is that now that you've heard all seven steps in detail and you've heard this keynote address, that you would take the charge on leading your team in this, that you would have them listen to these episodes, or maybe you would write down a couple paragraphs on each of these steps yourself, and you would take on a sales process in your company. You know, Right now, we're in the heart of it, and I know that things are busy, and it can be difficult to try to stay afloat, but I'm, I'm telling you, take advantage now while people are coming in the door. Get your team tracking along the same wavelength, and it's going to be amazing to see what happens. This is how we move from doing sales by accident to doing sales on purpose, and I'm really excited to see what you find as you embark on this journey. Well, hey, if this podcast has been a blessing for you and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website, patreon.com slash it's fire time. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash it's fire time. Now that we're through this part of the season, 
I hope that you guys got a lot of value out of it. I, I get really excited to go through these seven steps because they've impacted me so much and I've seen them impact others in the same way. But it's going to be really fun to turn the page with the rest of this season. There's some really, really good interviews that we have lined up with just some heavy hitters. and I'm super, super excited for you to listen to this. So again, thanks for listening. I appreciate you and hope you have an amazing week. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. All in to burn. 